You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. I didn't know that was the song that had been picked, but it's an interesting one given one of our first topics here that we will tell you about. As you get ready for the NFL season, you know the tune. That is a masterpiece of the classic rock variety. If you're after more classic rock, you're going to find it. in The perfect mix in the classic rock essentials playlist. It's on Apple Music from the 60s and 70s all the way up to the 90s. Listen to the classic rock essentials playlist on Apple Music. Jamie, as you are well aware, fantasy football fans are well aware, the NFL season kicks off tomorrow, and there are some interesting quarterback notes that you may want to jot down or at least keep in mind if you are drafting tonight. One of them out of Indianapolis today. Yeah, and this one also especially relevant for uh, Seattle Seahawks fans who might be listening given their week one opponent. But Ian Rappaport reporting earlier today that Colts quarterback Carson Wentz, full participant today in practice. That's according to Coach Frank Reich. He will be on the field in week one. So remember, there was, you know, doubts about uh, his status for early in the season after he took that injury in training camp. But Carson Wentz will be suiting up for the Colts against the Seahawks in week one. Doubt would be the main word associated with the status of Deshaun Watson from a professional standpoint, if not a personal one, given the legal issues that he has going on right now, which we all know are far more important than his football career. But as a sports fan, you're probably wondering what's going on with Deshaun Watson. Does he play at all this season? Does he ever play for the Texans again? Well, the reports out of Houston are that he never plays for the Texans again. The question is, does he play in the NFL? Is there are, are there suspensions coming? Are there sanctions coming against Deshaun Watson, regardless of what his fate is legally? Interesting from the general manager, Nick Casario, on sports radio today in Houston, Jamie. He said, I wouldn't anticipate him playing on Sunday, and we'll recalibrate here as we go. It's that last little bit that has people saying, okay, what does that mean? Deshaun Watson is on the active roster. They have to have him on the active roster. They can't just yeah. suspend him with the way things are going right now. And they want to trade Deshaun Watson. I think we all understand why that trade has not been facilitated to this point in time. But for him to say, we'll recalibrate here as we go, is very, very interesting. It is. I do wonder if it was just not a slip of the tongue, but just saying, look, it's a fluid situation because he could be traded, right? There could be extra revelations or something that develops legally we don't know about. I, I, I wouldn't read that much into it but you're right it's interesting that it was said at all it's just that we're looking at our options here is what it says to me yeah and yeah i think the hard part to speculate is whether one of those options involves deshaun watson playing in the national football league at all this season i'm certainly not going to weigh in with the legal opinion here because that is what hangs over this this entire decision jamie whether he plays whether he gets traded any of it but it's interesting to try to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. People wondered if he'd even be on the active roster to start the year. Yeah, and it looks like that will be the case, but they'll make him inactive for game day. That's kind of the plan going forward. But, you know, as we heard, there there's potential to recalibrate that down the road. A lot of questions about quarterbacks. It's often the topic du jour. Bob Glauber, NFL columnist with Newsday, joins us here. One day in advance of the NFL season kicking off between the Bucks and Cowboys tomorrow from T-Bay. Bob, thank you very much for doing this. How are you today? Uh, you're welcome, and I am doing great. Hope you guys are good, too. We are, and thank you very much for asking. What is the number one story around the National Football League to you on the eve of the season? Well, I, get, I mean, Deshaun Watson's a pretty big one, even though he's not playing. Uh, but I would say the other one is is, is Tom Brady. <laughs> I mean, it's, 
as far as I'm concerned, it's Tom Brady's world. We're just living in it. And, you know, he has just owned this league for more than 20 years. And, you know, um, there's no reason to think he can't, he can't do it again. So it's, um, you know, if you're going to have a dominant storyline. It would be Tom Brady and everybody else. Interesting that that's where you would go because recency bias is a real thing. I'm not accusing you of that. It's just the general populace goes down that road going into last season. Well, how are the Kansas City Chiefs going to lose? They're not until they did. To you, are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers the clear and away favorite in the NFC? Um, no, I, I would say that there are some teams. I don't think there are a lot. I, I think two in particular are Green Bay and the Rams, I think the Rams are going to be a very interesting team. Um, you know, we'll see what happens when when Sean McVay has the quarterback with the big arm in Matthew Stafford. And I I don't put it past Aaron Rodgers to just pull off this flair for the, he's got this flair for the dramatic, and um, he's good enough and talented enough. And I think that team is talented enough to make it, to make a run. So I, I would say it's not, you know. Look, this year, you know, opening day, we're, we're upon it. Yeah, Tampa's the team to beat. But, man, strange things happen in the NFL season. It goes up and down. I think that's the beauty of the length of the season. You get these trends. You get these movements where, you know, a team looks unbeatable for a month. And then, you know, they go in the tank and then they come back. And just, the ebbs and flows of an NFL season are remarkable. And, and I think that's a testament to just how it's structured and how – even the league usually is. I will say this is a little different in the NFC. It's a little bit more top-heavy than usual. Uh, the AFC, to me, has a lot more good teams that uh, can kind of surprise as we go along. And, Bob, I think people look at the Buccaneers, and with Tom Brady there, as you say, you know, it's, it's his world. We're all just living in it. They bring back basically the entire roster of the team that won the Super Bowl last year. You know, it's natural that a lot of people will expect them to repeat. Just looking at the Buccaneers, you know, and not some of the other competition that they'll have to go through in the NFC, but just looking at the Bucs roster and the way, the way they're built, what do you think is most likely to derail the Buccaneers' bid to repeat as Super Bowl champions? That's a good question because I think they look really strong all the way around. Um, yeah, maybe if the running game isn't quite as good. You know, Fournette is, is a good runner, and he, and he had his moments last year. I'm not saying he's a great runner, but they have a very good offensive line. Um, and the other thing would be, you know, what happens in the secondary. Um, not totally deep there. Um, and then I guess third, you'd have to say, you know, at some point Tom Brady is going to, it's going to lose it. Um, I just don't think that point is right now, but, you know, the guy's 44 years old, and, you know, he's he's defying time. Um, so I would say in, in order, those, those are the ones that, that kind of come to mind. Yeah, it's it's funny. I've brought this up a couple times throughout training camp. You know, you feel crazy saying it at this point, but you're right. Eventually, Tom Brady is going to feel the effects of age. And we've, you know, people have been wrong so many times about that in the past, but eventually it's going to happen. Yeah, I'm with you, though. I'm not betting on it being this year. I want to ask you about their opponents on Thursday as well. The Dallas Cowboys, always so much attention and so much hype for the Cowboys. Okay, outside of the health of Dak Prescott, which is obviously a massive story, and you know we're we're all wondering what kind of Dak Prescott we're going to see. But outside of that, what are you most curious about to see from this Cowboys team on Thursday? I would say the defense. 
Um, you know, this defense was absolutely positively putrid last year. I mean, it was embarrassingly bad, especially in stopping the run. And I think one of the biggest additions, <clears throat> excuse me, um, to this team is not so much a player, although Micah Parsons is a terrific linebacker. I think he's going to you know, contend for defensive rookie of the year. Uh, but Dan Quinn, Dan Quinn, the defensive coordinator, adding him to that a talented defense that got more so talented in, on, on draft day, um, that to me is going to be a difference maker. Now, sometimes coaching takes a while um, to kind of kick in, but Quinn, I think, is in a really good spot, and the Cowboys are lucky to have a guy who has been a really good coordinator, didn't work out over the long term in Atlanta, but Dan Quinn is motivated, he's talented, he is very smart, and I think it'll do a world of good for a defense that, you know, should be better on paper, uh, certainly than it was last year. Bob Glauber, NFL columnist with Newsday, joins us here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. A lot of focus on the Bucks, understandably so. That's how it goes when you're a defending champ. Within that division, the New Orleans Saints have been waiting and waiting and waiting and coming close. There's obviously a changing of the guard at quarterback. They've made a trade today for Bradley Roby out of Houston as well. They're a tough team to read, given the importance of the position they're changing at quarterback. What is your view of the New Orleans Saints this season? You know, the Saints are a really interesting team to me because, you know, for the first time in a long time, they don't have Breeze. And I think Sean Payton is an excellent coach. I think he will get the most out of Jameis Winston that there is to be gotten. Um, but let's face it, Winston has been a turnover machine for most of his career, and he's got to stop that. And I, he's not going to because that's just, you know, that's who he has been. I think he can get better at it. But he's got the big arm. Um, this team is very, you know, he, Sean Payton just loves to, to uh, like Hank Stram used to say, he loves to matriculate the ball down the field and just, just go, you know, guns out. Um, so I think it'll be an aggressive team. Defensively, they're, they're good. I think they're good enough to kind of hang around in games. It might get a little ugly sometimes. But, I, you know, they, they intrigue me. And I think the Saints have a chance. Um, in the in the conference to get a wild card, I, I I think they may sneak in there with a with a decent enough record. You mentioned the Los Angeles Rams a little bit earlier. They get Matthew Stafford. Let's see what part of the offense that unlocks. Their defense is stout. We know how good it is. Aaron Donald being the face of it. Jalen Ramsey close behind. Handicap that division for me because there's a lot of opinion on what most com most consider the best division in football, the NFC West. Yeah, I think it's a really good division, and it's a fun division because there's a lot of rivalries. Seattle hates San Francisco. Um, the Rams hate the 49ers. Uh, you know, the Cardinals. The Cardinals are a little bit of a dark horse, and I think I think they're a talented team. And I think Kyler Murray is going to have another good, you know, forward-looking year. Maybe a little bit better than last year. I think maybe maybe he regressed a little bit last year, but I think he's got confidence. Um, and I know Cliff Kingsbury's got confidence in that offense, and defensively, Ed and J.J. Watt, um, it, it helps them. So I would look at it right now as the Rams on top, then the Seahawks, uh, then the 49ers, and then the Cardinals. Um, and I, I think that three teams can come from that division in, into the playoffs. San Francisco's got to do a couple of things. Jimmy G's got to be good enough uh, over a long period of time um, to, for them to get a wild card spot. So... I think it's for sure 
uh, you know, to me, the class of the divisions is, is the Rams with the Seahawks not too far behind, um, and then the 49ers, then, then the Cardinals. Aaron Rodgers obviously won the MVP last year. The two years prior to that, it was second-year passers, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes. And we did see Josh Allen in his third year vault himself into the MVP discussion last year. Who is the second or third-year passer most likely to either win the MVP award or get into that discussion? Is it Kyler Murray? Is it Justin Herbert? Is it somebody outside of those two? Uh, I would take of those two, and I'm I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be missing somebody. Maybe, you know, Tua. I don't I don't look at him as an MVP type guy. Um, I but I would say Herbert has got a pretty good chance of having a special year. There's just you know, he, he just kind of gets it. He's a very um, low-impact, low – I don't want to say low-energy, but he's very fluid and he's very effortless the way he throws the ball and the way he looks at a defense. And I, I think he's, he's going to be really good. Um, and, I, you know, he showed it last year. He just did not take a long time to acclimate. And he was off to the races. So I, I would say Herbert's got a, got a chance to be that, that great young quarterback who takes the next step and makes, uh, makes the Chargers uh, more of a relevant team. Well, and speaking of young quarterbacks who could take that big step forward, Bob, you know, I wanted to ask you about Daniel Jones with the New York Giants because I've started to see some people, you know, make the comparison between Daniel Jones going into his third season and Josh Allen and what he did going into his third season. Now, obviously, that's that's an unrealistic expectation to put on any player because the jump Josh Allen had was just so incredible. But, you know, if you squint, you can see the comparisons and they're both big athletic quarterbacks who, you know, didn't have the best first two years in the league again i'm not saying he's going to be josh allen this year but do you think we could see a significant step forward for daniel jones in new york um it depends on your definition of significant um if you're talking about 30 touchdowns 10 interceptions that's pretty significant and i think that's what he would need to kind of show that all right this guy is this guy is a big deal i don't see it um, I think he can be a serviceable quarterback to a above-average quarterback. But Daniel needs a lot of stuff to go well around him. Not that other quarterbacks don't, but Daniel, I think, especially does. He needs a running game because he needs a play-action passing game to be reliable. Um, and he needs better receiving talent, which he has now. Uh, they got Kenny Galladay. He's been out m- much of training camp with a hamstring. Kadarius Toney, he's been out with a various ailments, the rookie uh, out of Florida, um, and you know they got Sterling Shepard, who's a good, reliable um, receiver. Um, having Barkley back will be huge. Um, but I, I don't see. I, I think Josh Allen took very significant steps forward each year of his career, and they were like it was noticeable from year one to year two, and then from year two to year three. So, and and, and he's going to continue to grow, and that team around him is just so good. Brandon Bean is, is the, one of the best general managers in football. He and Sean McDermott have put together just a perfect roster, very methodical in building it, offensive line, defensive line, secondary, strong. Um, you know, the running, running game is, is good enough, and, and the receiving core is very good. So uh, I, I would say to have Daniel Jones expect to be like a Josh Allen in year two or three, I think that's asking a little bit much. Giants would certainly take it 
and it would probably mean they'd be uh, in contention for a playoff. Well, right, especially in that division where there's not necessarily a clear favorite or a team you expect to be a Super Bowl contender. While we're in New York, of course, the other New York team, the Jets, they'll have a rookie starting at quarterback for them this year. What do you expect to see from Zach Wilson in year one? You know, Zach, I've, I've kind of watched him closely um, being around the New York teams quite a bit, and he there's a little something kind of kind of special about him. Um, you know, it's gonna he's going to take his bumps and, and, you know, make mistakes. But, you know, he's a very confident guy, very smart. He's a very – he's a gym rat, so he's always looking at film and always thinking. Um, he's a good leader. The players love him. It was just announced today that he's a, one of the team captains. You don't see that very often from rookies. Um, so he kind of checks all the boxes. And he's he's a good athlete, and he's got what, what the analysts like to call He's got good arm talent. You know, he can, he can make all the throws. He can throw from various um, trajectories. He can get out of trouble. Um, you know, and he can, he can improvise a good deal. So I, I think he's got a really high ceiling, and I think the Jets are eventually going to be happy that they drafted him. It, it, it's going to take some time. Um, it's a very, very young team. I think they have six rookie starters on this, on this offense and defense. That's a lot. Um, so it's going to take some time, but I think Wilson has got the goods. All right. He wasn't a polarizing pick at number two, nor was Trevor Lawrence at number one. Trey Lance at three overall surprised a lot of people. Then you got Justin Fields, who the Bears traded up to get. And, of course, Mac Jones, who impressed everybody, not the least of which was Bill Belichick and got Cam Newton cut in the preseason. Of those five first-round pivots, who is most likely to go Justin Herbert on this season? A guy that we're talking about after the season as, man, I thought he might be good one day, but he's good a lot faster than I thought he was going to be. That's a good one. Um, I, I won't say Jones on that one because I think Jones is a he's a, he's a good, really good, strong, smart quarterback. Um, but he's he's a little bit basic. I don't want to say basic. He's better than basic. But you know he's he's a good strong pocket passer who will run when he has to. So I would say once Justin Fields gets his chance, and I think that chance will come sometime early to midway through the season. Um, I I think Fields has a shot to kind of be the guy that that wows you. I would say between him and, and Zach Wilson. Bob, excellent Lawrence, stuff. I gonna, Lawrence, I think, is going to struggle, by the way. I mean, his offensive line's terrible. Personnel is not good. First-year coach coming out of college. I, I think it's going to be a rocky year for Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, that Etienne injury down there hurts because you know they wanted to run the ball a decent amount, make those plays short, mm-hmm. extended handoffs just to take some pressure off. I know they've got more backs in that backfield, but the, what you mentioned about the offensive line, it's absolutely the case. It could be a very fr- rough year on the job for trevor lawrence bob thank you very much for your time today you like the rest of us i'm sure eagerly anticipating kickoff tomorrow all set man can't wait thank you for having me thank you that is bob globber of newsday joining us talking nfl football jamie i'm not sure we can dive into it and formulate great cases for it but perhaps something we do tomorrow as we preview the start of the nfl season those five first round pivots i've heard a bunch of different analysts a bunch of different reporters make cases for Almost every single one of them. The only name I haven't heard, hey, by the end of the season, you're going to be surprised at how much further ahead he is than than we thought, is Trevor Lawrence. That's the only one I haven't heard because of everything Bob Glauber just mentioned there. 
Well, and it's also, I think there's less or fewer questions about Trevor Lawrence than the other ones, right? So everyone kind of says, yeah, Trevor Lawrence is going to be really good, but he's not going to have the environment around him to actually maybe get a chance to show that, right? So it would be really hard for Trevor Lawrence to kind of make us change our evaluation of him in a positive way, just because opinions are already so high on Trevor Lawrence and the situation around him is so bad. All right, so here's one. You don't, you don't even have to answer right now, Jamie. You can ruminate All on right. it until tomorrow. Does Trevor Lawrence have a better first year than Joe Burrow prior to his injury? I would say yes, because I think Trevor Lawrence is probably a better prospect than Joe Burrow. They're both in really difficult situations. I don't feel great about it because they have the same major flaw, right, which is their offensive line can't block anyone, and that's a tough place to be in. Uh, for a rookie quarterback, but I would lean towards Trevor Lawrence having a better season than Joe Burrow. Mm, so many questions, so much to dive into, and we will do so over the next 24 hours and change leading up to kickoff between the Bucks and the Cowboys tomorrow. You're all ready for your fantasy drafts. That might come up a little bit later in the show because somebody reminded Jamie and I of a previous connection. We'll tell you who in the final hour of the program. But coming up next, you know this as a hockey fan. When you hear it, you know that you're never going to forget it. And we heard one of those types of statements yesterday. It will be tied to him, and we'll talk to it. We'll talk to Ian Mendez, I should say, about it next of The Athletic. He joins us on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. That's not the one I thought you might play today. Underrated Def Leppard song there. I thought you might play Pour Some Sugar, which is obviously overplayed, but... Jamie, 34 years ago today, I saw it was noted that Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard was released in 1987. Wow. I'm, why, why don't we have the day off to celebrate? It's a great What's question. What's going on here? It's a great question. I'd ask the boss, but anyway, different story. <laughs> ask, I, think he's, I think he's got some, some other things on his plate right now. We don't have one, right? Uh, long story. <laughs> long story. <laughs> <laughs> it's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd having a little fun with you. And thanks for chiming in today. Listeners are getting in. We'll try to filter your texts in. 960, 960, 650, 650. We're going to talk some hockey here in just a moment. Jamie, you don't always know it's coming, but you know it the second you hear it. For example, what was it, five months ago, Jim Benning took to the podium. Maybe it was four. And one of the things he said, I say podium, but it's Zoom conferences right now. He said, we'll be aggressive. We're going to be aggressive. Yep. I'm going to be aggressive. And the second you heard that listening from around the hockey world, you went, okay, there is something you said that you were going to be held accountable for. I'm writing that down. I'm noting it in my memory banks. You said you're going to be aggressive. Let's see what that looks like. And as you and I have said many, many times, whether you like the moves, hate the moves, somewhere in between, Jim Benning was aggressive this offseason. Yeah, he sure wasn't lying. He, he was not blown smoke when he said he was going to be aggressive. They were aggressive and then some, really, this offseason. Brad for Living said, we need to change. And there are a lot of Flames fans out there that would say, mm, this isn't what I expected, which is why I've said nope. for a while, I still think something's coming with the Calgary Flames, might ultimately be proven wrong. I still think there's something, something coming because that's on the record. Pierre Dorian yesterday said one of those things, didn't he? Yeah, I think it's gonna it's going to end up being remembered like that. The rebuild is over. Those were the words. He didn't have to say them, but he did. He gets the contract extension, he's got the job security to say it, but when you say 
the rebuild is over, basically it's go time, there is a different level of expectation. My guess would be, and Ian Mendez is going to join us in just a couple minutes' time, covers the Senators, covers hockey for the Athletic. My guess would have been this. Senators fans would have come off a better-than-expected season, progress for young players, but still said, okay, we need to be realistic here. We're going back into a division that has a lot of heavyweights at the top. What are we realistically going to do? I'm not saying Senators fans all of a sudden are saying, okay, it's playoffs or bust, but when you say the rebuild is over, it signals a different part of your cycle, and it, it holds you to a different expectation. And to me, what he said yesterday has to increase that expectation. It does, because what's one of the things we've said consistently about the Senators over the last couple of seasons, right? Okay, they didn't win a lot of games, but they play hard, they compete, they're always in it, they're always giving the other team a run for their money, right? When you say the rebuild is over, that goes from being something you can kind of hang your hat on to all of a sudden, well, that's not the expectation anymore. If you're not, like, that's good for a rebuilding team, but if you're not rebuilding, you got to do more than just show up and have moral victories all the time. There comes a point in that cycle where you do have to increase the standard. Have they increased it accidentally a little bit too early? Ian Mendez of The Athletic in Ottawa does the great hockey podcast for The Athletic as well. He joins us here today. Ian, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Hey, guys, doing great. Uh, and you know what, Scott? I think the last time I was on, uh, I was on with Jamie and, and Karen, and I may have made fun of you. So now I, is it my turn to make fun of Karen now that she's not, uh, she's not there? Well, you can do so at your own peril, or you can just make fun of me, you know, sort it to my face, but at least with me on the line, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what? But, hey, hey, listen, great, great to be on with you, and I know that, uh, hey, listen, there's no shortage of uh, things to talk about. You're absolutely right about that, and we'll start with Pierre Dorian, who gets the contract extension yesterday. What's been the reaction from the Senators fan base? Yeah, you know what, guys? I got to say, it was pretty interesting, like, and I think it was a really – uh, surprising turn of events because I don't think a lot of people thought that Pierre Dorian was going to get a, a contract extension. I think a lot of people thought he's got one year left on his deal and then a club option after that. Why don't they just see how this plays itself out? Maybe if they start out after 25 or 30 games, they're struggling, you know, you got the easy out. He's the, you know, he's the guy that you replace. Instead, they take all of that narrative and they basically punt it into, into, you know, uh, into space because now it's, it's not a storyline anymore. He's there and could be for up to five more years. So uh, the fan base is kind of like, look, it's, it's very much like the Vancouver fan base. Uh, and, and, you know, I think uh, sometimes Calgary falls into that uh, fan base. And really, I think most Canadian fan base are the same where if a general manager has been on the job for an extended period of time and you haven't, won a championship or gotten close to it, the heat gets turned on. And the heat is on a little bit on Pierre Dorian. The only difference is this is a little bit different because this was a total teardown, right? Like they just tore it down. There's been no expectations uh, for this team. So I think most people are like, okay, you know what? Uh, this guy had to do a really unenviable job, which was tear down a team, get rid of the Stones and the Carlsons and the Turrises and the Pajos and, you know, kind of all these popular guys, get rid of them yeah, you know what? They're pointed in the right direction. He probably deserves a chance to see it through. So there's, there, you know, there's that segment of the fan base, but then there's the other side of the fan base that's like, oh my gosh, we've been a tire fire for four years. Uh, we're still not quite uh, a playoff team. What's going on? So 
as you guys know, in passionate hockey markets, you get a wide spectrum of opinions. And I will say, though, I think surprise was probably the, the one uh, element that I think was most prevalent in, in the marketplace yesterday. Well, and I imagine fans were a little surprised when Pierre Dorian said the rebuild is over because that signals a different level of expectation. So on the heels of that, what qualifies as success for the Ottawa Senators this year? So I think it was really interesting. And look, we live in the, uh, you know, 280 character world and the, and the, and the world of quick sound bites. And so when you see that and, and you're out West and you see Pierre Dorian says, this is going to be fun. The rebuild is over. What's your first thought? You're like, Okay, well, they're going to be a playoff team, right? He's saying they're a playoff team. Well, but when you listen to his, his, the entirety of his press conference, at no point did he say we're a playoff team or even use the P word. So I thought that was really interesting. I think what he's saying, if, you know, and I'm not sure that if he had a chance to go back and, and redo it, that he, he would change any phrasing or wording. But what I do think uh, his, his message was, I think the days of us being a doormat and having a top five pick are done. I think what he's trying to say is this year at the very bottom of the heap, uh, and I think if we're looking at this objectively, you guys tell me if I'm wrong. I think if you're looking at this objectively, I think you would say Arizona, Buffalo, and I might throw Columbus in there, but like you're like, those are the teams that are going to be the bottom feeders, that are like probably going to be grappling it out for the first overall pick. And I think Ottawa's moved out of that conversation. So I think what he was trying to say was, we're no longer the, the, the punchline or the laughing stock of the league. We're ready to take – the, the ship is pointed in the right direction. Now, does that mean – I don't think they're going to – like, if you're asking me, I don't think they're going to be a playoff team. But I do think they have an opportunity to, to compete for one, and they do have a chance to kind of maybe get into that, maybe from, like, 22 overall to – you know, 15, 16 overall, the mushy middle that, that, that we like to sometimes refer to. So I think that the expectations, even though Dorian said that, and I know it, it, it is absolutely an eye-catching quote, it is, like, I'm not going to lie to you, it is, but I think with a little bit of context and a little bit of understanding of where they're headed, I think he's just saying we're out of the rebuild and it's time to start thinking about adding and, and not always just, uh, you know, drafting players and, and thinking about prospects. Ian, I always find the Ottawa situation fascinating, you know, in large part because of, let's call it the unique ownership situation with Eugene Melnick in Ottawa. And I think for me, it, it makes it difficult to evaluate Pierre Dorian as a general manager in the same way that we would evaluate other general managers around the league, right? Because there is that extra context where, you know, he has a certain ownership uh, situation that he needs to deal with. Do you find it's a little trickier to to get a handle on him as a general manager as well because of that? Yeah, I think that's a fair, that's a really fair point. And I think, um, I think when you look at the financial, um, you know, sort of things that are at Pierre Dorian's disposal, they're not the same as his counterparts, right? Like, and I'm not saying he's doing the job with one hand tied behind his back, but I do think that there are some significant limitations on what he's able to do and how he's able to do it. Uh, you, you know, I think you look at it today, if you go to cap friendly right now, who's the lowest spending team in the NHL? It's Ottawa. And, and it's like, wow, like this is the time when you thought that they would be uh, spending a little bit more and, and kind of maybe moving on up. But no, there's nobody in the NHL as of today. And again, that'll change. I'm sure once they get Brady Kachuk signed, they'll, they'll move up the ladder. But as we sit here on the, whatever we are, the 8th or 9th of whatever September, 
nobody spent less on their payroll than the Ottawa Senators. And I do think that there is an element of understanding in the marketplace here that, yeah, Pierre Dorian probably doesn't have all of the things. Like, you, you, all you got to do is you go to Toronto's, if you go to the Maple Leafs, uh, you know, front office page at MapleLeafs.com and you click on front office staff and you see, like, all the, the things that Kyle Dubas has at his disposal in terms of sports scientists and analytics and, you know, different, you know, different assistant general managers and all these things. And you look at Ottawa's page, you're like, this isn't, how is this the same league? So there's absolutely, uh, I think, uh, an understanding that, yeah, he, he's probably dealt with some things that um, other general managers don't have to do. And I do think that, that that is part of the evaluation process. Like, ask yourself if, and, and if you want to say Julian Breezebois is the best general manager in the NHL or, you know, whoever, pick your, pick your guy that you think is the best in, in the game right now. If you parachuted that guy into Ottawa, are the Senators significantly better or are they still financially kind of hamstrung by, by you know, kind of these constraints uh, from, from Bob? So it, it, it's a really interesting thing to watch it unfold. And uh, we'll see if they can get Brady Kachuk done. I think maybe it'll change a little bit of the, the reputation about them, them and spending. Well, I think it's a great point you make about, you know, if you parachute whatever general manager you think is at the top of the heap right now into Ottawa, how much would things change? And, you know, you talked about the fan reaction to the Dorian extension, and and some fans obviously like what he's done. Some are a little bit skeptical. But I imagine there's also a pretty significant contingent that looks at it and says, you know what, Dorian, maybe he's the right guy. But if there's not that increased commitment from ownership, it probably doesn't matter a whole lot who's the general manager. No, exactly. And you know what? And I think one thing that's really important to, to hammer home here that, um, that, that people need to understand, again, for a little bit of context, the Ottawa Senators as an organization in the last four years have been the epitome of chaos, of dysfunction, of a revolving door of, uh, of, you know, of management and of, of executives. And so if they're able to inject a little stability, and remember, as of you know, six weeks ago, both DJ Smith and Pierre Dorian were headed into the last years of their deal. So to inject that type of stability into this uh, organization, they've been desperately lacking it. Um, I think it's a good thing. Now, now I know, again, you're in a Canadian market. You're going to say that this team hasn't made the playoffs in four years. You're going to be people – look, you're not going to make everybody happy. But in the context of – providing some stability that's exactly what they've done they've locked up the head coach and they've locked up the general manager now the interesting thing becomes what if they get off to uh, a, a poor start a pedestrian start and what if at christmas time they're in that conversation with those aforementioned teams what if they're hanging with buffalo and columbus and arizona and it's new year's day what's the recourse then everybody's been extended right so that's the only uh, situation where I, I could see the extensions becoming a little bit contentious in this marketplace. But again, I, I think they've gotten themselves out of that conversation that they shouldn't be down there with those, with those teams. And so I think at the end of the day, um, you, you finally have some stability for an organization that has really had a hard time with that word in the last four years. Ian Mendez, the Athletic in Ottawa, joining us here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Brady Kachuk does not have his extension yet. And when it's your team, it feels like you're the only one in the world. Canucks fans know that there are other RFAs of big-name variety that haven't been signed yet. So we're not at this panic mode as of yet. Where should this contract come in? Give me a ballpark. 
Well, and, and okay, so I think, guys, when you look at it, and I think it is really interesting that there's three elite, um, we'll call them high, like kind of high-end forwards that are still RFAs, right? You got Kaprizov in Minnesota, you got Pedersen in Vancouver, and you got Brady Kachuk here in Ottawa. Kachuk comes with a little bit of a different element, right? Like he's, I don't, he's not as high-skilled as those guys, but he is certainly an impact forward in, in the sense that he's an elite power forward. So I, I look at the, the deal that Andrei Svechnikov signed with Carolina, whatever that was, 10 days ago, two weeks ago. I think that gives us a really good idea of a, of a cap number for Brady Kachuk, at, at the very least, a ballpark number. Like, so that's just a hair under $8 million. 775, I think, is the number that, that Svech came in at. So I, I'm thinking Brady Kachuk comes in at around, let's say, between 7.5 and 8.5. That, like, if I'm going to guess, that's what I'm guessing. But I'm not so much worried, guys, or uh, I'm guessing so much on the, on the contract as, as much as the term. And I think that, especially when, when you know, Elias Pettersson kind of made those comments a few weeks ago about um, it certainly seemed to scream bridge deal from him that kind of, hey, I, I, don't want, I want to see where this is headed. I want to know that I'm playing for a winning team down the road. I think that's what Brady Kachuk wants, too. I think he just wants to make sure that this is headed in the right direction. So um, I'd love it for this fan. This, like, this fan base deserves a star player on an eight-year deal. They've got one already in Thomas Shabbat, but Brady is such a popular guy. They deserve another one. So, look, for the fan base's perspective, I think it would be great. I think for the organization's perspective, it would be great. But look at the way that Brady Kachuk – uh, his brother has handled this before. Matthew signed that three-year bridge deal to set him up for uh, the big payday. You're seeing that, right? You saw it with Matt Barzell uh, last year. Um, don't sign the long deal. Sign the three years times seven and then try and hit another home run. Even Austin Matthews, you can argue, he kind of went with a medium-sized deal. Like You're not always seeing the guys come out of their entry level and going for the eight-year deal. That happens sometimes, but not all the time. So I think... Brady Kachuk seems like a very, very much like a empowered athlete that wants to control his future, wants to control his earnings. And if I was in his shoes, I would absolutely think about a three-year deal and then try to maximize it again down the road. So if I was to guess, guys, I'll say a three-year deal, probably coming in at, you know, seven and a half, maybe just under $8 million and then see where you're at in a couple of years. But ideally, ideally for both sides, that's an eight-year deal. Just bet on yourself like Dak Prescott did. You're a big Cowboys fan. You must be thrilled about the matchup tomorrow. See, like, why? I was in such a good mood. I was in, and I thought you were going to go with the natural segue of Brady from uh, Brady Kachuk to Tom Brady just to make me depressed. But this is not going to end well. This is not going to end well for my favorite team. And where's Karen going to back me up here? I could have had some Cowboys uh, love here. But I, boy, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic about opening night because you get a date with the defending champs. Uh, it's, and your quarterback is, hasn't really played at all in, in training camp uh, in the preseason. So I think it might be ugly on opening night, but I'll hold out hope that they can turn it around and, and maybe win that weak division. Well, yeah, it's not a very good division, and it feels like a failure if you don't win it, especially if you got all the resources that that team does. Well, exactly. I, I mean, like, just look at that, how much money they spent on that drone footage on the uh, hard knocks. Like, uh, that, that, I mean, it, it is... They are the most fascinating team to me, and, and I'm saying this even as a Dallas fan, but they are the most – they're like they're like the Toronto Maple Leafs or there's a handful of teams where you're just like, I'll tune in, and if I'm a fan, you want them to win. But if I hate them, man, I love seeing them lose, right? And that's what they, that's what they have. They have. They have that unbelievable 
a juggernaut of a, of a following and, and, the, and the unlimited budget. And you're right. In that NFC East, 8-8 eight eight might, might get the job done this year. And you compare them to the Maple Leafs. I think that's an accurate comparison. Does that mean you will be binging uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs all or nothing when it drops in October? I think so. Like, I, again, I think it's the curiosity factor, right? Like, um, I think – and I love these things. Like, I wish the NHL went back to more of that 24-7 uh, stuff uh, because you get that kind of unvarnished, behind-the-scenes look at, at the way that coaches really talk to the players and the players talk to each other. And, and, and that stuff is great. Like, I, I was all in when the Cleveland Browns were in on hard knocks, and I'm not even a Cleveland fan. So I'm in on this Leafs thing. The funny thing is that we all know – we all know how this story ends, right? It's another uh, kind of uh, first-round flameout. But the behind-the-scenes stuff, maybe to see the way that Kyle Dubas, who seems very mild-mannered, to, to see him be- behind closed doors and, and, and to see some of these things going on, I'm all in. And, I'm, and I know people in this market in Ottawa are going to be setting their PVR, or I guess it's on Amazon, so you don't set your PVR. But I know they're super excited about the fact that they're probably going to show the game where Toronto was up 5-1 on Ottawa, and the Senators came storming back to win it 6-5. to So there's going to be some happy Ottawa fans, I think, tuning in for that episode. Well, I would be a happy fan if we get more Eugene Melnick between two sends footage. The, the original interview was outstanding. It's in my Audio Hall of Fame. I need more of that. Can we get more of that, Ian? Uh, you know what? So that's funny. So I, I want to say that was the, the fall of maybe 2018 when he did that infamous, uh, you know, between two ferns type of thing with, uh, with Mark Borbietsky. He has not, and when I say he, I mean Eugene Melnick, has not done an interview with anybody in Ottawa in like kind of a, a broadcasting sense, I think since 2019. Uh, I could be wrong, but he has done mostly uh, Toronto-based stuff. There's a couple of print reporters that I think he's pretty, he's okay with a couple of uh, people in this marketplace, so I think he'll, he'll chat with them, but he hasn't done uh, anything in the Ottawa market. So, boy, I, I, don't, I don't know that we're going to get any uh, kind of fresh Eugene Malnick audio. I'll give him credit. He's done a really good job uh, of stepping out of the limelight. Like, there was a time when every six weeks you could mark it on the calendar, Eugene Malnick's going to speak. And I would say you can count on one hand the number of times he's spoken in the last two or three years. And I, I, I just think that it's probably a good thing for him and it's probably a good thing for, for everybody. Well, chances are that's what Brady Kachuk is holding out for. We've got the money settled. We've got the term settled. I want the interviewing rights to Eugene Melnick, or I am not signing on the dotted line. That's probably what it is. Ian, great stuff as always. Appreciate the visit. I will hope for your Cowboys, at least some of them fantasy football-wise, though I won't be pulling for them in the standings. That's so, that, yeah. That, listen, that's about right. Uh, at least they're a pretty good uh, fantasy team there with Amari Cooper and CD Lamb and Zeke and all those guys. So hopefully hopefully you get a couple of uh, touchdowns tomorrow. And uh, listen, guys, always love uh, hopping on with you. Have a great day, and uh, we'll talk again soon. You as well. That is Ian Mendez of The Athletic in Ottawa. Jamie joining us from across the country. And translation to me, based on tempered expectations, and yeah, it's easy to see the quote, but he never said the term playoffs. If Ottawa does not finish above at bare minimum, like the floor of expectation has to be finishing above Buffalo and Detroit within that division yes. and, and pushing upward, if you don't do that at bare minimum, now something big has to happen or there's going to be the call for somebody or a change or or some type of, of reworking, whether on the ice, behind the bench, 
probably not Dorian now after that extension, but that's the bare minimum, isn't it? Yeah, there has to be upward positive trajectory, right? It can't just be what we've gotten used to seeing from Ottawa in recent years, whereas Ian said, you know, oh, you're picking in the top five again, and that's good because you get another high-end player, but it also means you were terrible. That's not what they're going for, and I guess that's really what Dorian was trying to get at, right? We're not a rebuilding team like Arizona this year, right? That's going to be content just to lose a ton of games, collect assets, collect young players. They're trying. They're kind of officially trying to start building, and that means you got to see results. You got to see. Yeah, it doesn't have to be playoffs, but you at least have to see that you're pointed in the right direction there in Ottawa. We're going to point you in the direction of the big show next in Calgary. We'll turn things over to our listeners there on 960. You and I roll on for another hour. How one player in the NFL brought us together, even though you don't know it yet. Jamie, that's part of what we've got for you in the final hour of the program here today. And a couple of questions that a lot of you have hit us up hard on at 650-650 when it comes to your responses. We'll get those in next right here on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Gets him back to second, now brings it home. Swing and a long one. Right center field. Adios! It's into the bullpen, and that's the Rockies' winner. Larry Walker with the bookend home runs. He homered to give the Rockies the lead in the first. He homers in the bottom of the 11th inning to win it. He could do it all, man. He really could. He could run, he could throw, he could obviously hit. He was a gamer. That was Larry Walker, who goes into Cooperstown officially today. Congratulations to him. Jamie, just the second Canadian to be inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame. What a career. As you said, really could do it all. Seven gold gloves, also won three batting titles. You know, I don't have the list in front of me, but I'm I'm guessing it's probably a pretty small group of players who can say they accomplished both of those feats not to mention all the home runs he hit his arm out there in right field was incredible as you said he could run the bases pretty well he really was that five tool player especially early in his career and I think for a long time people kind of downplayed some of his offensive accomplishments because a lot of them happened at Coors Field but even adjusting for that he is still just a phenomenal phenomenally productive offensive player I heard one of his former teammates talking last week and the interview had nothing to do with Larry Walker whatsoever it was Dante Bichette he's the father of Bo Bichette a lot of people know this he happens to be a hitting coach with the Jays and the question was about bunting and how it's kind of a lost art the stats say don't do it so nobody does it a lot of players don't work at it in the minor league level so you get to the major leagues and if there's a situation that presents itself where you go you know what, I know we don't do this very often, but this is a very obvious bunt situation that would help us win the game here to move runners over and put us in a position to get the W, and really that's what the most important. There's a lot of players who don't feel comfortable with that, and Bichette's answer was about that, and he somehow incorporated Larry Walker into this. Look, we know Larry Walker as a power guy, run the bases, throw all of it. Dante Bichette brought up the fact that he said, I remember watching Larry Walker in the bottom of the ninth with two outs, bunt on a suicide squeeze to win us the game in Colorado like he really could do it all man. let's go that's awesome that's a great story of all the people to drop down a bunt in that situation right at that time one of the most feared hitters in the game that's fantastic so Larry Walker we all know how his time ended with the Montreal Expos 
His season gets cut short, as everybody's did in 1994, and that's kind of where the Expos died. They didn't officially die that day, but we all know that's where the soul was sucked out of that organization, and the sell-off began, and Larry Par- or Larry Walker was a part of that. Again, just consider this for a second, Jamie. We, we just came off a segment we were talking about Eugene Melnick and where he's cheaped out at certain times. That's the perception. Is he going to pay guys? Larry Walker coming out of that year in 1994 where he's coming right into his prime he's already a really good player they let him walk without even going to arbitration sorry we're not gonna pay you we don't care what an arbiter says we're out you go and sign somewhere else so he did that he signed with the colorado rockies that gives you an idea of just how bad things were financially with the montreal expos and what type of sell-off was in place yeah that's tough you're letting not just a young star player, but a young star Canadian player. And you're a Canadian franchise. I know he's from out west, and it's Montreal. It's not exactly like he's a hometown guy. But still, you would think if you're tied up for revenues, you would want to keep the young Canadian star in town to try to help sell some tickets. It's it's actually pretty depressing, really, when you think about just how... Oh how tough things were for that franchise and how poorly it went, especially in that final decade, as you said. I mean, they lingered for a while after that, but they really just felt, it felt like they were just hanging on by a thread from that 94 season until when they finally ended up leaving. And just another reason that Larry Walker resonates with so many Canadian baseball fans, let alone Expos fans, is that he still plays that what-if game as well. Larry yeah. Walker, when you ask him about it, he goes down that road. He doesn't say, well, you never know. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say if we won the World Series that year, things would have stuck around. It was a tough time. Finding... He doesn't say that at all. He says, no, it's still difficult to talk about because we feel like we had a team that could have won the World Series that year. And if we do that, is baseball still in Montreal? Like, he still has that same open wound in his heart as a Canadian who was playing in a Canadian market that saw the franchise he loved go elsewhere. Well, he's just such a likable guy, right? Like, every time you hear an interview with him, he seems genuine and heartfelt and open. I mean, right, getting the, uh, you know, getting the call to, to that he's going to Cooperstown, he's doing the interview on TV in his SpongeBob shirt. It's, it's just, you have to work really, really hard to find reasons not to like Larry Walker. Okay, so I am not going to compare this year's Toronto Blue Jays team to the Montreal Expos of 1994 that were regarded as the best team in the league when that season stopped. I'm not going to compare it in that sense because the Jays are not that. And I feel really good about where they're at in the playoff race right now. And obviously they're on a six-game heater. And you look at their schedule and you start to do math and you're like, okay, the pathway to get to the playoffs, it doesn't look so bad. I will say this, Jamie, because there are some out there, and I'm not one of them. You know what standard I've been holding this team to since day one. I said, I see enough there. Get into the playoffs. That's where I'm holding to you, you to. I'm not going to be like, oh, it was a year of growth. It's next year. Nope, I'm holding you to getting into the playoffs. Yep. I, won't, I won't call it failure, but if they do not make it to the postseason, I will classify it as a disappointment. Absolutely. And here's part of the reason why. There is a little bit of an it factor about this team. Not the 2015 Jays that you went, man, if they get in, like, watch out. They very realistically could win the World Series. But this Jays team is going to be classified. I heard Dan Schulman say it earlier today, and I agree wholeheartedly. This Jays team gets in. They are going to be dubbed the team no one wants to play. Is that fair? Oh, I think it's absolutely fair. And you're starting to see that more from other teams who are, you know, right now, whether it's the Red Sox, the Yankees clinging on to playoff spots, they look at this Jays team and they see a lot to be scared of. I mean, first of all, 
you know, now that Vladdy is back to hitting bombs, he they, they have the best hitter in the league. So that's something you're always going to be terrified about. Robbie Ray is a contender for the Cy Young. So if you're in that one-game wildcard playoff with them, they have one of the best pitchers in the league they can potentially put out there on the mound. And, you know, it's interesting you compare it a little bit to the, the Montreal Expos and just having that it factor. And, you know, back then with that Expos season, we weren't really paying attention to things like run differential. But now you look at the standings and you call it the standings and it's prominently displayed wherever you're looking and you take a look and you see, holy cow, by by run differential, the Jays are way better than the Yankees and way better than the Red Sox. And I think a lot of their fans see that as well and say, actually, this team might be better than us by a by a decent margin, especially if they're, you know, hot like they are right now. And I, I do think fan bases certainly in New York and Boston but elsewhere in the American League as well see them as man we do not want to run into that team in October okay so I told you about one of my perhaps irrational fears a little earlier in the show with Alfonso Davies and hopefully that injury is quite minor as someone was reporting earlier today but my, my irrational fear is Bayern Munich puts the kid gloves on and says I'm not so sure we're going to release him for further Canadian internationals over the next couple of months depending where the games are played and the potential conditions that's my irrational fear here's my irrational fear about the Blue Jays I'm not saying that they have a one-year window or anything like that my irrational fear is that when you find this it factor it doesn't come around all the time and it can be fleeting what is on the horizon for Major League Baseball, a potential work stoppage once again next year, Jamie. Yep. And that's the comparison I want to bring in. If the Jays don't get in here, it's easy to say, well, next year, maybe Vladdy's a little bit better, and Bichette, it, he evens things out. And and what if they sign Marcus Simeon again, who's having an unreal year, might overtake Vladdy Guerrero for the team leading home runs before the end of this Yankee series the way he's going right now. Yeah, but what if they don't play baseball next year? Or what if they only play a part of a season next year and you hit the ground late and you can't quite find the team chemistry? That's my irrational fear. When you find this type of it factor, whether you've got it all the way over the line or just part of it, you better find a way to get into the postseason and do something. Well, and Scotty, I don't know if it is that irrational, to be perfectly honest. I mean, given the history of labor relationships in Major League Baseball, I think it's completely fair to be worried about a potential work stoppage and how it might affect, you know, a young, extremely exciting team. Look, I agree. It's not as if they have a one-year window, but also hanging over all of this is the, you know, impending free agency of Robbie Ray and Marcus Simeon, right? So I think there's extra pressure there to get something done while you have these guys on the roster. I mean, we could all dream as, as Jays fans about them re-signing those guys and bringing them back and breaking the bank to do it, but I wouldn't bet on it right now. So there is that extra pressure, but you know, to your point about a potential work stoppage, it seems extremely likely, not not likely necessary, but it seems extremely plausible to me that that will happen just because we know these sides do not like each other. They don't get along very well. I know not everyone out there is a Jays fan. We've had some dissenters come in earlier. That's fine. I have no problem with you puffing out your chest and saying I'm a Mariners fan. Even if you're a Bo Sox fan, hey, rep your team. That's just fine. That's what makes this fun. Don't blame the messenger here by the way astros lead the mariners 3-2 in the top of three seattle's trying, <laughs> trying to stay in this playoff race right now they had trouble with the astros man looked like they were going to get the win last night gave up a couple in the bottom of the ninth astros won it in extra innings it is 3-2 right now for the astros over the mariners i'm not one of these people and i know you're not as well that hates on the mariners ah it's another american league team no no i i hate on the red Sox. i hate on no. the yankees because they're in the division 
I've said all along, I would love it for the Jays and Mariners to meet in the playoffs. I would love to see yeah, a great. series, yeah, that partially is held at Safeco. That would be awesome. Or T-Mobile as it's now known. I think it would be fantastic so I could go down and watch that. It'd be fantastic. I mean, even let's go Jays Mariners in the in the wild card game this year. Sure. That would be fantastic, right? Get some buddies over. You probably, you know, most people who are baseball fans and have friends who are baseball fans probably have friends who are fans of the Jays, but also know people that are friends uh, that are fans of the Mariners. That would be fantastic. I I have no ill will whatsoever against the Mariners. I will say. Not surprised that they're having trouble with the Houston Astros. As much as we might not want to admit it, that Astros team is still really good. Yeah, really good team. It's a really good team. Do you guys agree that Expo team in 94 probably could have won the World Series rocket and Langley? Yes, of course. And it's, it's so it's so easy to speculate. I, you can't sit here and say, well, for sure they would have won the World Series. It's one of the few things, and I get why people do this. It's one of the few things that bothered me about the Malice in the Palace documentary. The number of people that watched it, I was compelled as much as anybody with what I saw and heard. But the number of people who went, oh, they for sure would have won a title there. Hold on a second. Yeah. Hold on a second. There have been a lot of good teams in a lot of sports that looked like they were quote-unquote locks to win, and they never got the job done. That team was having that game in November, Jamie. It's not like this was the last couple of weeks of the regular season and they were clearly better than everybody else over the course of 82. It was November. Don't tell me they for sure would have won an NBA title that year. Yeah, that's that's going a little far. And I, I agree, you know, in, the, in those sports docs, we've been talking about a lot of them, they always want to make the subjects seem as high stakes as possible, right? So that's why they're going to go down that road. But you're right. It's so early in the season. I believe the San Antonio Spurs won uh, the title that year. It's like, you know, as you you might recall, the Spurs of that era, they were pretty good themselves. Not not like they were going to be a walkover in the finals. Not too bad. Yeah, it's a pretty decent team. It's one of the very few things that bothered me about that documentary. We had a good interview earlier with Mike Rupp. The Danbury Trashers documentary. I know neither of us wants to ruin it for those who haven't consumed it. The official title of it, if you want to go find it on Netflix, and I suggest you do, Crime and Penalties. We had some radio issues during the first couple hours of the show. I believe they are cleared up now. So some of our listeners may have missed that interview. Mike Rupp was great. I thought it was a really fun conversation with him. You can check it out on our podcast, sportsnet.ca slash 650. That'll be posted right after the show is over. I believe it's already posted on social media. Now you can go to the at Sportsnet 650 account. Man, that documentary was compelling. It's one of those, and I, and Mike Rupp brought this up during the interview. It's one of those you watch, Jamie, you go, man, I can't believe they played hockey like this. And I can't believe it was 2004. Like, it's not 1978. Yes. It's 2004 no. they were playing hockey like that. No, it was extremely, extremely recent. And, and, you know, Mike said, look, you know, okay, it's minor league hockey. Even in 2004, most teams have a heavyweight out there to, you know, partly to entertain the crowd, partly to keep guys in check or at least try to. That's pretty common. Some teams have two. They had about eight. (laughs) They had one of the most heavyweight, heavy rosters that's really ever been assembled. And the remarkable thing about it is they were very successful. They were one of the top teams in the league. I mean, they had legitimate championship aspirations. They fell just short eventually, but they were one of the best teams in that league. And it's it's just remarkable that they played that way and that it worked so well. It worked on the ice. It worked getting people into the team, in the community. It was a complete success for those two seasons. Can you imagine at 17 years old being handed a professional hockey team 
and you're the general manager, you're the president. That's what A.J. Galante got. You as a hockey fan, you as somebody who played minor hockey out there in listener land, text us at 650-650, put yourself in those shoes. 17-year-old self, you're the general manager and president of a team, and you're right. They might have done it by completely unconventional and, in some cases, illegal methods, assembling that team, Jamie. But they were successful, and they were successful not only on the ice. They were successful in the stands. That place was packed. Well, and the funny thing about it is, about the whole story is, and the way it's kind of set up early in in the documentary is, okay, this, you know, let's just say it, you know, mobster, mob boss, whatever you want to call it, Jimmy Galante, buys a hockey team for his son. And the way they set up AJ, the son, you're kind of expecting him to be... You know, he's described as a punk, and he's kind of goofy. He's obsessed with wrestling, all of this stuff. You're you're not expecting him to do a great job with the team, but he kind of does. Like, he does. He's a 17-year-old with all of those factors I just listed, all of a sudden in charge of a hockey team. He does a pretty good job running it. Like, he's, he's it's successful from a business standpoint. I thought that was really funny. It was not where I thought that storyline was going to go. No, is there a wow moment for you, like one that sticks out more than any other in the Buck 26? It's, a, it's about an hour and a half of a Netflix documentary. As as Mike Rupp mentioned earlier, Crime and Penalties is the longest of the untold series that they've done so far, a series that includes Malice at the Palace. Is there one moment that it's not going to spoil the whole thing, but jumped off the page to you and went, did I just see that? Did I just hear that? So there's a couple of moments. So the one I'll say that actually has nothing to do with the hockey team, but because early in it, they're setting up, okay, the context of this family and how much kind of power and sway he has in Connecticut and in Danbury in particular. And one of the examples they give is, you know, as I mentioned, his son, AJ, is really, really into professional wrestling. And for, I don't know, his 11th birthday or something like that, this guy manages to get The Rock and Triple H and a couple of other professional wrestlers to his son's birthday party. And that's at a time when these guys are massive, massive, you know, WWF at the time stars. And I was, okay, okay, this guy's not just, you know, pretty rich. He has some serious pull. If you can get The Rock and Triple H to show up to your son's birthday party, that's not bad. That's pretty good. And then the other one, and, you know, we touched on it a little bit, but one of the kind of stars of the documentary is a guy from BC named Brad Wingfield, who was kind of one of the chief enforcers on the team. He suffers a really, really bad injury at the hands of another player on another team at one point. And the conversation we he has with Jimmy Galante, the owner, is, you know, Jimmy saying, hey, look, I know where this guy lives. How do you want to handle this? And, you know, you can just leave it at that. That's that, that, but that was the reaction from the owner. That really stood out to me. Yeah, that's the one I was about to mention as well. Yeah. That that he came to him and said, like, you're healing from this broken leg, but we have this dude's address. What do you want to do here? What What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you want? What, what do you want? <laughs> well, we have this guy's address. What do you want? Uh, yeah, okay. I don't know if we need to do anything here. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we need to do anything about that right now. Like, I'm going to recover from this, and, and I'll mete out my vengeance on the ice, but... I appreciate the offer. He doesn't say that in so many words, but like any of us or anybody growing up uh, that played sports would think, well, okay, the next time we get a crack at this guy, uh, we're yeah. going to we're gonna serve him his own ice justice. Oh, no, this was uh, an allusion to something completely different. Yeah, no, this was maybe some off-ice justice, right? It's funny because, you know, in the NHL, in that, in that situation, what happens, right? Like, yeah, you circle on your calendar. You know, your general manager maybe calls the league and has questions about the refereeing. Your coach comes out. 
Now, this was slightly different. This was, I found out where he lives. What's, what happens next? What do you want to happen next? I want to circle back to this as well because it's kind of related. Teams and leagues and professional athletes are getting into this behind the scenes, and we we eat it up. And I'm one of the people yep. who is consuming it a lot. Even though guilty as charged, I still haven't watched Drive to Survive. I've got to rectify that. Have you watched it? I have not yet. It's it's on my it's on my to do list, my to watch list for sure. Yeah, I feel stupid and so late to the party for not having watched it because everybody says it's fantastic. But the Leafs have this all or nothing documentary that's going to drop on October first. There's a trailer out right now. You can fill our text message inbox with the jokes if you like. Brought to you by Dun- <laughs> Dunbar Lumber at six fifty six fifty. Most of them have already been made on social media as expected. But it did get me thinking this, and, and we had some people respond to this earlier in the show. I'll throw it out there again in the late portion here to our listeners. When you have a gut-punching loss, and that's exactly what that was against Montreal, there's no way to sugarcoat it. In fact, Canucks fans revel in it. Hey, yep. my team's not in the playoffs. What's the one thing I want to see? I want to see the Leafs lose. There's a lot of you who find yourself in that camp. And so you thoroughly enjoyed Montreal coming back from the brink and beating the Leafs and sending them to the golf course here just a few months ago. You're going to have to relive that if you're a Leafs fan. Like, you're going to get to see the season. You're going to get to see a bunch of things that were great, including Austin Matthews' fantastic year. But you you know how it's going to end. And do you want to put yourself through that whatsoever? So I would throw that out just in general. Whether it's Game 7 of 2011, Game 7 of 1994, whether it's something with a different one of your teams, maybe the Seattle Seahawks and second and dumb and the pick by Malcolm Butler. Do you relive those losses? Jamie, I know you answered the question unequivocally no a little bit earlier in the show. Yeah, no, I'm a big no, and I'm just trying to put myself in in the shoes of Leafs fans here, right, who, you know, okay, they want to see this behind-the-scenes access to their favorite team. You know, it was a really positive regular season, so maybe you want to see some of the fun moments that happened there. Let's say there was a similar documentary made about the 2011 Canucks, and it was the whole season, not just the Stanley Cup final. What I would do, because, yeah, I would want to see those moments as well, I think what I would do is watch it, and then as soon as it started to touch on the Stanley Cup final, I would turn it off. I was like, nope, that's as far as I go. All right, game five against the Sharks, Kevin BX's goal. That's great. Click. It's going off. I'm not watching beyond that. Come on. You would watch it. You'd be in nope. at that point. Nope. You would watch it. You would want to see how those players reacted before the media got to see them. You would want to see what they said in the dressing room after that. Oh, man. I don't know if I would. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I get it. That's compelling. I don't know if it's worth how much it would upset me to sit through it again. You know what I mean? I don't know if the payoff is worth sitting through it. Again, I hear you. I get it. That's all compelling. That's great. I still think I'm turning it off, though, before that. I don't know if it's the coach in me. I don't know if that's what it is because I coached after I was done my uh, very short-lived, quote-unquote, career. But I do go through some of those games, and I talked about the San Francisco 49ers and and their tough Super Bowl losses in this past decade. Mario and Richmond is Team Jamie on this. Mario says... Do I like to relive horrible sports losses? Five seconds after the game is over, menu, PVR, (laughs) recordings, delete, says Mario. We're done. Mario is out. I love it. There's something very kind of, you know, cleansing about that, right? All right, I'm done with this. I hated it. Never want to relive it again. Delete. It's gone from my life. The temptation isn't even there to go back and relive it anymore. 
John in Vancouver is a loyal listener. He's also an unabashed Leafs fan. Here's what he said to that question. To rewatch the Leafs' recent disasters to identify X and O breakdowns is pointless because those losses were about character, grit, and intestinal fortitude, says an obviously frustrated John. Yeah, it's that's the thing. I, I understand your point about, kind of, okay, where did it go wrong? What, what could have gone differently? You know, to go back to the Canucks in 2011 – you know, I feel like I kind of know, I mean, first of all, you know, Aaron Rome not getting suspended, not laying that hit on Nathan Horton, you know, Dan Hamhuis not injuring his back on a hip check. I kind of know the moments that could have changed the series, right? So I don't feel compelled to go back and, and relive them. But there are some instances where, man, wow, how, how did that happen exactly again? And you feel like you want to dig in for more context, but not in this case for me. I have a moment that could have changed our relationship. Good news, Jamie. It did not. It didn't alter things completely. We will get to that and who was on the ice for the Vancouver Canucks today. That's coming up next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. I like this one. Good choice. Attaboy, Balak. Final segment of our show today, but lots to come. Bick Nazar, Katie Caldwell, Sportsnet Today coming up after this program. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd for one more segment. You are invited to get in on the conversation. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Who's on the ice? Who's on the ice, Jamie? People want to know it this time. It's very informal. We're still more than a couple of weeks away, just slightly, from training camp. But people want to know who's in town, who's on the ice. There are a few Canucks out there today. Vasily Pozkolzin, how did he look? Well, according to our Brendan Batchelor, play-by-play voice for the Vancouver Canucks, that Vasily, uh, Vasily Podkolzin, pardon me, was out there with Jason Dickinson and Jonah Gadjevich. They were the shooters with Thatcher Demko and Ian Clark this morning. And I saw that uh, reporter Kevin Woodley yesterday, I believe, or maybe it was earlier today. I don't know. It all runs together. But I think it was yesterday. It was, you know, shooting some video of Podkolzin getting on the ice, running some drills, you know, putting mm-hmm. one past... Uh, Martin Jones, I believe it was, and Batch has followed up. You know, there's other players out there, some Canucks, some guys from the Vancouver area, or at least who live here. Uh, Batch says the main group today includes the likes of JT Miller, Bo Horvat, Tanner Pearson. Those are the Canucks. You also have Alex Edler, hasn't made his way down to LA yet, but he's out there in full Kings gear. Sam Reinhardt, Brendan Dillon, and Martin Jones, all, of course, local products out there getting a skate in together as well. Yeah, this is just get. The juice is flowing, get yep. a little bit up to speed, knock off some rust. That's the time of year we are at. I want to see if it was just social media, not trickery intentionally, but you know how sometimes you see a photo on social media and you go, wow, that can't be right. Like that's, yes. that must, yeah. that just must be the lens. Did you see the size that it, that it looked like the size of the hands that Pod Colson looks to have? Did, have you seen that? I did that? not see that. No. Okay, so it was from a couple of days ago, and I can't remember. I would give whoever posted it credit. I want to say it was Rob Williams of the Daily Hive. I might be wrong on that, but somebody posted. They had screen cap Vasily Podkolzin, had a photo from a balcony, basically just showing, hey, I'm in Vancouver, and he was dressed in a T-shirt, and, and he was on a balcony wherever he happens to be residing right now. Sure. And his hands looked massive. Like, they just looked huge, like these massive bear paws. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe he has these giant hands, but they're the type of hands that you're like, I kind of need to see that in real life to see if it matches the photo. 
yeah, sometimes photos can be deceiving, right? You get something at the wrong angle, you know, you're you're maybe have a different setting checked on your phone, whatever it is. You can get some pretty weird results, but I had not seen no Vasily Podkolzin's monster hands. I wonder. We'll have to uh, maybe we can get you know I don't know if the first media availability will be in person or it'll be Zoom or whatever, but maybe we can get Batch on that. He can ask or try to check it out exactly what's going on with Podkolzin's hands. Call McEwen and ask him. He'll be setting that up, won't he? The hey, we want to get Vasily on. We, we want to get Vasily on, but for a yeah. very specific reason. All right, that's, that's just we just want to run that by you. For those who don't know, C-Mac is working for the Canucks now. He's working in a PR role. A lot of people know that the boss left the station officially last week. Did his last show last Thursday. He works for the Canucks, and yes, he's posted that on his LinkedIn profile. So it's already out there. We're not breaking yeah. any news here. He's gone to work for the Vancouver Canucks, and we wish him all the best. We waxed poetically about what a great boss he was last week. Set it up, C-Mac. We need the hand say, report. We wish him all the best, and also that he hooks us up with lots of great Canucks interviews. That's uh, I, that's what we wish more than anything else. Yes, absolutely. And here's the other thing. I know every one of our listeners can relate to this. At some point during your life, either you have giant hands and you're the person people talk about in that regard, or or you've met somebody and you've shaken his or her hand. You went, where did my hand go? Like, it's gone. It is engulfed. I'll tell you a guy all the time, and he wasn't big stature-wise, like as far as height goes, Wally Buono. Wally Buono's got some mitts on him. You shake Wally Buono's hand, and you go, okay, yeah, he played linebacker, did you? I can see that. I have never had the pleasure of uh, of shaking hands with Wally Bono, but I will I will keep an eye on that if I ever do get the opportunity. You should, and this is not a good note for us to get out on this. I do think it bears mentioning we send out our deepest condolences to the family and friends of Patrick Janssen, who was a yep. Canucks scout in Europe, and he is the guy that will be linked for a long time to Nils Hoaglander. He was the guy who, as Thomas Drance notes on his Twitter feed, pounded the table ahead of the 2019 draft. Like, get this guy, put him up your list. Nils Hoaglander is a guy you're going to want. Unfortunately, Patrick Janssen has succumbed to cancer, so our deepest condolences go out to the family and friends and to the Canucks organization. Yeah, absolutely, and, you know, I, I certainly didn't have a chance to interact with, with Patrick, but Everything we're hearing today is not only what a talented scout and evaluator he was, but what a fantastic person he was as well. So as you said, condolences to his family, his friends, and, and everyone in the Canucks organization today. I I don't know if he scouted Hoaglander's hand size. We have people texting in right now at Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. 650-650. I saw the pod Coles in hands. I thought the exact same thing, said somebody. So it's not just me, Jamie, someone else saying Lanny McDonald has the biggest hands I've ever shook. I love this. This is going to be a great underlying storyline for the Canucks season this year is the, the myth of Pod Colson's giant hands. It's fantastic. Next person, I played pool with Gino, as in Ojek, many times at, at the roller, and his hands are those of Grizzly Bear. Pause. Crazy. Rager Texan did workouts with Dean Valley and Ryan Lucas. My God, they are massive people with massive hands. See, this is a thing. You don't forget those with the giant mitts. See, Gino Ojic having massive hands doesn't surprise me at all, right? I can't say no. I'd ever thought of it before, but as soon as I saw the text and as soon as, you know, the name Gino Ojic came up, I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can see him just having massive, massive mitts. Yeah. Poco Dave texted as well. I met Gino Ojic. The man has enormous mittens. No surprise whatsoever. 
All right, Jamie, you know what a lot of people are prepping for tonight. In fact, Tim McAuliffe is among them. Did Tim make the right choice, by the way? I will put this out very quick, late edition straw poll or text poll, whatever you want to call it, 650-650. Did Tim McAuliffe make the right choice? He's been in a fantasy football league for a really long time. It's pretty clear that, that a lot of the people, if not all of them, are his buddies. Tim had a yeah. ticket tonight to go to Canada versus El Salvador. He had purchased the tickets in advance. The fantasy football draft got moved. Tim is not going to go to the match. He's making sure his son goes, going with a family friend. He is giving the ticket to someone else. He is going to be at his fantasy football draft. Did he make the right call, Jamie? It's tough to say. Here's the thing. So I'm... I understand that this league probably has some sort of emotional value for Tim McAuliffe. It's not just your run-of-the-mill uh, fantasy football league. So I get that from that perspective. The only wrinkle that gives me pause is that he has a co-manager, right? So can you yeah. set it up that the co-manager is the lead guy? He's at the draft. You're following along on your phone. You know, if there's big decisions to be made, you help out. That kind of thing. That's, that's the only wrinkle that gives me pause a little bit. It's like, okay, you have a way you can kind of sidestep your duties here a little bit but he did say that the other guy is indisposed tonight he's not yes. going to be able to do much of that's it either fair. that's so fair he felt compelled to be i don't know that's tough to pass up canada versus el salvador tonight from bmo in toronto we can mention that and get into that a little bit more before the end of the second but he's going with his fantasy football draft and i guarantee we got a bunch of listeners out there who are prepping for one or more fantasy football drafts tonight you did a couple last night did you not I did. I did two last night, and I actually had uh, – I so rarely get lucky in fantasy football, but I had the good fortune to be randomly assigned the first overall pick in both drafts, which I was pretty excited about. And I imagine you went with Christian McCaffrey? Oh, yeah. Easy. No no hesitation, no thought to put into that one. Christian McCaffrey, write it in ink. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Lock first overall. I hope you didn't go with uh... – first overall jinx like i really hope you didn't jinx him because i happen to have him in one of my leagues and you know this for a fact quite often the number one overall pick something happens it's almost like yep. the, the madden jinx yep and i mean christian mccaffrey was the first overall pick the obvious consensus first overall pick in fantasy last year and mm -hmm. didn't play a whole lot of games and if you you know i actually had first overall in one of my leagues last year as well felt great about drafting mccaffrey it ends up kind of costing you your season, right? Because he's unavailable for so long, and you just don't have the other high-end talent to really fill in around him. So still no hesitation for me, because what are you going to do? There's no one else who really deserves to be in the conversation. But yes, I am also cognizant of what happened last year in this situation. I remember when David Johnson was the consensus number one overall pick, and I yep. took him. And in game one, he broke his thumb, and that was it. And David Johnson didn't play anymore, and he's not the David J Johnson we thought about in that way anymore, is he? No, he, um, yeah, he's not, he's not in contention for a first overall selection anymore, to put it mildly. Okay, so there's a lot of people prepping for their fantasy football draft, and they're trying to figure out all the latest news and notes, because if you're in one that drafts today, you want all of the information. That's part of the reason your league drafts that way, is because you want people to have the best opportunity, the best knowledge, know things like, Travis Etienne's not going to play this year. Maybe you would have drafted him before. Well, he's going to be out for the season. Thank you very much. There's some guys that fall into that category. Carson Wentz, we should pass along. He's yep. apparently ready to go, and that he's going to be the starting quarterback for Indy this coming weekend against the Seattle Seahawks. 
Yeah, so that's, you know, I, I don't know how many people are rushing out to draft Carson Wentz. Maybe if you're in a two-quarterback league, something like that, you have a little bit of a different setup. But, yes, for, you know, Seahawks fans for week one, for fantasy fans in general, Carson Wentz will be good to go for the Colts this weekend. Okay, so every once in a while, a name rolls around and you connect it to fantasy football. And one of those names rolled around yesterday, at least for me, and I hope for you, Jamie, because you should remember the special moments in our relationship. And that player is Latavius Murray. Weird way that he got ushered out of New Orleans, by the way. He had his most yes. productive season in his career. He is 31 as a running back. We all know what that means. But he had his most productive season last year, and they asked him on Monday, hey, would you take a pay cut? He was like, no, I won't. And they said, no. okay, we're going to go with Tony Jones as the backup to Alvin Kamara then. We wish you the best of luck. Yeah, tough way for it to end. And I even saw Sean Payton out there today saying, you know, like he was really important for us. We, we gave him a lot of carries. He played an important role in our offense. So kind of bizarre, especially on the eve of the season, really, for him to be on the outs there. Do you remember yours, your connection, my connection, our shared connection to Latavius Murray? I don't. I am baffled by this. I feel like I'm on like the newlywed game or something. I mean, put on the spot here. I have no idea where this is going. How long had you been at Sportsnet 650 before you entered the Sportsnet 650 fantasy football pool? Oh, man, probably only like a couple months, if that. Because I, right. I would have joined officially in maybe July, and then obviously we're doing the draft, what, late August, early September, something like that. And when you join in the summer, as we have seen here over the last couple months, people are on holidays. You probably hadn't met everybody, certainly in person. Nope. You might have talked to them, but you hadn't met everybody at that point in time. No, absolutely not. Especially, you know, when you're breaking in, you're working evenings, you're working weekends, right? You're not always around the office to even meet people. So one of our first interactions was me proposing a trade with you after that draft. Me all right, all right. Latavius Murray, you sending me Rashad Penny. Is this starting to ring a yeah. bell? Vaguely, yes. I seem to remember that. <laughs> okay. So also, I why, why did I have Rashad Penny? Dang it. <laughs> This is a great question, and why was I proposing this trade? Well, there's a very obvious answer to this, because I had Chris Carson at the time, and maybe sure, Rashad sure. Penny was going to get some carries. We think about him a little differently today. Latavius Murray was on his way to New Orleans, or maybe that time he was in Minnesota, but he was a productive backup. He was backup. in Minnesota there. Yeah, yeah he, he was a productive backup at worst. At worst, he was pregnant. So anyway, I propose this trade to you, which is not a starter's trade. I think it's something that's a little, hey, maybe you get a little more upside with Latavius Murray, but I get the situation in Seattle. Do you remember you went and tweeted about it? Yeah, absolutely. I tweeted at you about it. Yeah, so you went and tweeted. We I remember this now. I don't it. remember exactly what I said, but I remember right. this now, yeah. Right, and you basically said something along the lines of, oh, yeah, one of the vets trying to take advantage of the new guy with this trade <laughs> yeah, offer. Exactly. That's basically exactly. what you – and you're like, yeah, I'm not buying it. I thought it was a fairly fair trade offer, and you took it public. And so I had to come in. I'm like, oh, you took it public, did you? Is this how it's going to be? Is this the foot we're getting off on here, Dot? <laughs> And you went into uh, C-Mac's office and you said, I'll never work with that kid. Don't that put me guy. with him. Don't make yeah. me do it. No, don't make me work with that guy. So that's our shared history with Latavius Murray. And looking back, you know what you should have done? You should have clicked accept. I should have clicked accept. Absolutely. It is funny to even, you know, like it's the trades that get proposed in years past and then you revisit them. You're just like, wow, that would have been irrelevant. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even if we had done it uh, either way. Oh, poor Rashad Penny. Yeah. So many, so many high hopes that it just hasn't happened down in Seattle.
No, it hasn't. I wondered if he was going to get cut. I honestly wondered if he was going to get cut leading into this season, and he somehow survived the 53. That's where he is right now. But I honestly thought he might be out on his ear. I it would not have surprised me at all, really, with how things have gone for him. I mean, it's it's been a tough situation there. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. It certainly has. We'll see where Latavius Murray ends up. He's probably not on your roster this year, Jamie. You've nope. got Christian McCaffrey. So maybe maybe you maybe you invested in Chuba Hubbard as some sort of handcuff in the late stages, but I'm not sure. No, I, I'm not that smart. I didn't think that far ahead. Okay, well. Would have made waiver, sense. Would have made some waiver, sense, though. Waiver wire. Maybe he's sitting yeah. there. Maybe nobody took the young Canadian freshman that's going to be in the backfield for the Carolina Panthers. <laughs> I can't. I'm not. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. We have a lot of people texting in about hands, and I will I will absolutely <laughs> endorse this one. Someone said, I met Pat Quinn. His hands were huge. No yeah. question. I shook Pat Quinn's hand on a number of occasions. He, again, he falls into that category. When you shook Pat Quinn's hand, your hand was gone. You wondered if you were getting it back. <laughs> that's, an, that's another one, much like Gino Ojic, does not surprise me at all that Pat Quinn is is carrying around some massive mitts with him. Poco Dave is in on Gino Ojic, said he met him at Roosters. The man has enormous mittens. Some unsigned texter says, there's a video of Chara drinking a Coke bottle during the game. It seems to be a two-liter bottle that looks like a baby bottle in his hands. <laughs> yeah, I think Zanato Chara has that effect on a lot of things. There's, of course, the you know regular 650 listeners will know there is the kind of like quasi-mythical picture of our very own uh, Dan Riccio, who met yes. Zanato Chara at an airport once, that Riccio will not permit it to be released because the height differential between the two is just so, so spectacular. And to be fair to Reach, yeah, like Chara doing anything with a normal-sized object is going to make that object seem tiny and to be unfair to reach there is a picture that's in circulation of him next to cam jordan of the Orleans. oh yes yeah. and oh, that one's yeah, out there, there. Is. and if you want to talk about height disparity it's there would have been there for me too not as bad as with reach but yeah cam jordan's a big dude bad. man well cam jordan yeah. makes a lot of people look small yes he certainly does and especially Riccio. B in Fort St. John says, I remember I shook the hand of a Serbian guy that used to be a bricklayer. Can't remember the size of his hands, but seriously, felt like he broke my hand. I was told they had to tell him later not to squeeze so hard when he shook people's hands because he hurt everyone's hands that he shook. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what you get from, I guess, a career as a bricklayer. It's just massively strong hands that are a danger to everyone you meet in some way. Probably a bad segue, but Canada better not lay a brick tonight. Look, no Alfonso Davies this evening, and Canada has one more opportunity in this part of CONCACAF qualifying to register its first win without a loss so far. They scored a goal in each of the games. They've managed draws in each of the games. One felt pretty good, one not so much. Jamie, my expectation is still a win here tonight. That's fair, isn't it? This is a better team. This is a team that's at home. This is a team that has a lot of promise and a lot of potential. Tonight's time to deliver, even without Alfonso Davies. It really is. You know, I know there's a temptation to, one, because they don't have their best player, right? So that's obviously going to make you a little bit concerned. I get that. But also, you look at the fact that El Salvador... You know, they held the U.S. to a nil-nil draw. They had another nil-nil draw in their other game. So they haven't conceded yet. And you start to think, oh, man, is this team just so solid defensively that without Alfonso Davies, Canada's not going to be able to break them down, not going to be able to, you know, find that one moment to strike. 
But you also look at, one, just the rosters on paper and the talent differential, and it's significant. And even just Canada's record against El Salvador in CONCACAF is pretty good. And that's, you know, a lot of those games are with versions of the Canadian national team that didn't have nearly as much of attacking talent, right? So this is the definition of a team that Canada should beat. And I know things can always be a little funky in CONCACAF, but even without Alfonso Davies, they have the talent, they have the attackers, they have the quality, they have all of it. It has to be three points tonight. I'm with you 100%. Mexico comes calling in a couple months. We'll have a little bit of a different conversation depending on who's available. Tonight at home against El Salvador, a team that has yet to score in this round of qualifying through two matches, get the job done. Go get the job done. I'm going to be watching. I know you are as well. Look, it's a Hall of Fame Wednesday, so we're going to throw this one out there before we get to the very end of this program. Larry Walker inducted today into Cooperstown, just the second Canadian there, joining Ferguson Jenkins. Here's Larry Walker, a little portion of his Hall of Fame speech today, talking about how he wasn't quite clear on all the rules at the beginning of his career. But even after playing in Coquitlam and then in 84 for Team British Columbia in a tournament and Team Canada in the World Youth Tournament, I apparently didn't understand all the rules of the game. I had a lot of learning to do. I'm going to share a story about that year. I was on first and Gino was coaching third base, put the hit and run on. I took off for second of course I didn't peek in to see where the ball was hit. And as I'm rounding second, heading to third, Gino's screaming at me to get back. Well, it turned out the ball was hit in the air to right center. So I got back. Slid in, easily safe, called out. Get up telling the umpies blind and a bunch of other choice words. And Ken Brent, who was that first coach in that day, grabbed my arm and said, Larry, you're out. I argued with him too. It turns out, getting back to first base, you do not cut right behind the pitcher's mound through the infield, which is what I did. I already touched second once, why the heck do I gotta touch it again? Needless to say, I learned the rules and eventually how to run the bases. That's awesome. What a great story. <laughs> Just beelined it from third back to first. That's awesome. <laughs> I thought the punchline was going to be that, like, the first baseman didn't tag him. You know what I mean? Or something like that or, or, or whatever. But, no, just going right across the diamond. That's fantastic. I thought he was going to say he slid into second and couldn't yeah, understand yeah. why they were calling him out. Had no idea. I got back to first. I touched second once. Why would I need to do that again? What a great story. What a great story from Larry Walker today. Maybe there are a few more laughs. If so, we will get them to you tomorrow. Or perhaps Vic Nazar and Katie Caldwell will get them to you. They're coming up next on Sportsnet Today. Jamie, excellent show as always. Midweek edition. Plenty to focus on tomorrow. Start of the NFL season. We're going to have... Lots more news coming your way with Canada soccer tomorrow. We've got a semi at the U.S. Open. The great sports week continues. It's going to be fantastic. I can't wait for the game tonight. As you said, NFL kicks off tomorrow. What a week. It's awesome. Let's go. Let's go, Canada. Roger Shergill, fine job producing this program once again today. Big ups to Greg Ballack back at Mission Control. He's going to stay there, and he's going to up the next program as well. As mentioned at Sportsnet today, Vic Nazar, Katie Caldwell, Give it a listen, and don't forget the text in Dunbar-Ludbar text message inbox 650-650. We will talk to you tomorrow morning.